Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Getting to Better Together, our podcast mini-series sponsored by the Centre for International Development, Social Entrepreneurship and Leadership, CINSL, of the University of the Sunshine Coast, and I am your host, Richard Borden. Before proceeding, I wish to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land, the Gubby Gubby people, and pay my respects to the elders, past, present and emerging. It's deeply regrettable that the word custodian here fails to capture the nature of the relationships that Indigenous peoples across the entire globe have with the world about them. The notion of custodianship, or even more poignantly ownership, does nothing to convey the deep symbolism and spiritual connectivity that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples have with the natural world about them. For them, there is no distinction between people and nature. All is one, an integral systemic whole. Such an integrated unity is far removed from the view that has prevailed in what we refer to as Western civilization, where land represents a physical resource to be cultivated and manipulated and mined to meet our own needs and demands for food, water, minerals, recreation and so on. Something separate from us, where we feel at liberty to use the worth of the outcomes of our extracting activities to justify the means by which we achieve those ends. But as we now know all too well, by concentrating on the production of goods, we've all too consistently ignored the bads of the accompanying, if unintended, consequences. So we now find ourselves on an unsustainable trajectory as the warming planet, ubiquitous pollution and failing ecosystem integrity clearly indicate. It's not as if we haven't known about our impacts on the physical environment. This year, as it happens, marks the 160th anniversary of the publication of the book Man and Nature, Physical Geography as Modified by Human Action. It was written by an American forester, inventor, naturalist and diplomat, George Perkins Marsh, who is recognised as one of the first environmentalists in writing about the destructive impact of human activity on the environment at large. Fast forward a century and a bit to the publication of another seminal book in which the author, Aldo Leopold, also an American forester and naturalist, argues for the adoption of what he referred to as a land ethic. A thing is right, he wrote, when it tends to preserve the integrity, stability and beauty of the biotic community. It is wrong when it tends otherwise. Leopold argued forcefully that decisions about land use should appreciate the integral wholeness of nature-human relationships, while recognising that the challenges of development needed to embrace ethical and ecological dimensions in addition to economic ones. Means do not justify ends from this perspective, if those means reflect nothing more than a concern for economic value, with little to no concern for ecological or moral considerations. Nature, he submitted, has its own intrinsic values which deserve deep appreciation. We need to shift our worldviews from exclusive human-centred concerns to adopt holistic nature-centred concerns. It would take a further 40 years for a book to be published that attempted to capture that trinity of concerns and for this concept to finally create such a noise that it was heard by policymakers, scholars, activists and concerned citizens alike. It was in that 1987 book, which was a report to the Club of Rome and entitled Our Common Future, authored by the Brundtland Commission, that the first formal definition of sustainable development was formulated. 
development that meets the needs of, needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. While there was some appreciation here of an integrated economic, ecological and ethical perspective, this definition still clearly reflected a human-centred emphasis. The concern is essentially for the future of human beings from a resource perspective, and it can be argued that it is this human-centred or anthropocentric emphasis that continues to prevail at the core of the Sustainable Development Goals formulated by the United Nations and first promoted as recently as 2015 as the 2030 Agenda, which is now supported by many institutions and organisations across the world. With respect to the impact that is internationally recognised as being important with regard to actions that are being taken within the context of the Sustainable Development Goals, the University of the Sunshine Coast is among the leading universities in Australia and within the top 2% of universities across the globe. My guest today, Carmen Bass, is helping to lead sustainability initiatives at this university. Carmen is a psychology PhD student and a humanitarian affairs green ambassador. She comes to her doctoral research in environmental psychology following a truly outstanding undergraduate career, which was capped in 2021 by her receiving the Chancellor's Medal, the Student Leadership Award and the University Medal for Academic Excellence. Welcome, Carmen. Thank you. That sounds like I'm quite astonishing. I don't know. <laughs> what an honor to be here. <laughs> Let me start with a question about the recently announced worldwide sustainability impact rankings, which placed the University of the Sunshine Coast first in Queensland and 29th overall among more than 1,200 universities across the world. How do we do that? <laughs> yeah, we are punching well, well above our weight, aren't we, in, in terms of uh, our capacity actually it's in our outputs it's in the decision making processes at the university it's uh, part of its strategic goals I think it's embedded at every level um, sustainability is part of every aspect of this university which bodes well mm -hmm. but I think um, the way I see it is as a newer university too we're not um, constrained to institutional systems so much so we can adapt and grow and be more innovative mm -hmm. and I think that that bodes well for us um, and I'm, I'm quite pleased to be part of a university that is going okay how can we do things differently how can we actually collaborate and um, take apart some of these silos of research that's happening and even embed sustainability at every level um, from our undergrad all the way to postgrad mm. yeah so it sort of runs as a, as a consistent theme, does it, across all departments? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. I think it's um, that overarching, and if, it, if it's not an add-on, it's, it's part of the full strategic planning um, mm -hmm. of the university that it has to be embedded at right. every level of the decisions mm -hmm. that are being made. So I think because of that, it's just part of our way of thinking. Right. Yeah. Right. And how is that amplified? I mean, how does it, well, first of all, how does it start? And then how is it amplified? How, is it, how, how do we assure that there are relationships literally across the whole university to make it a, a university or institutional endeavour? I think it take, I, I can't really answer exactly how it starts, other than the fact that I think we have before a whole bunch of, before <laughs> my time, but I can say that we have a whole host of really passionate people um, that are going above and beyond. Um, you know, we have academics across different disciplines and different schools that are champion it, champion mm -hmm. and ensuring that it's, it's, it's going on, as well as 
the executive level, obviously, that has to be there. But I think it's in our academics that clearly are values driven in their research. Um, mm. And and they're in that teaching space as well. And they're putting it in, you know, practice into place. And, you know, when you know, what's really beautiful is as soon as we became my, my colleague and I, we started looking at the sustainability initiatives and we put a call out to different academics and we had about 40 of them respond going, can wow. we be part of your working group? Mm. And all of them doing it voluntarily oh. because they're passionate about what they're doing. Okay. And I think that shows, that shows in our outputs, right? Right. Yeah. So you have a continuing working group, which is... Yeah, yeah. We try and meet at least once a month. To be honest, we missed the last month. We've been a bit busy. But okay. um, right. and just yesterday, we launched our first pilot workshop of mm -hmm. our initiative, which is excellent. Mm -hmm. So we'll be, um, uh, we'll be seeing how that goes on Friday. And then we actually have a working... Um, some students, some undergraduate students from business and creative industries that will be creating a marketing model for us. So it's even in their curriculum now mm, to help mm, us in, in mm. our initiative, which is excellent. Yeah. Uh, the focus of Brundtland was, was on development mm. as a sort of um, a sustainable feature of the way we deal with the world about us. But sustainability seems to me something more deep than that. Yeah, yeah, I think so, because sustainability is all the pillars we, we can't just focus on one aspect right. um, and you know in its nature if we if we focus all on the environmental aspect then we're missing out um, a, a good society and if we focus just on the societal aspect then we're missing out on other you know the economy is still important so uh, you know I think that's exactly right we might look at development and we might be then focusing on just the people but then we're missing out you know, so as having that framework of sustainability allows you to see the complexity and the interactions mm, across. Mm. Yeah. So, so development gives us a sort of practical application context yeah. rather than just being that. Um, uh, I mean, I actually find sustainability a very difficult concept the more I think about it, uh, to the extent that many years ago I coined the word sustainableism, arguing that it was really a philosophy. Uh, it was about how we saw the world, as I said in my lead up, um, that for indigenous peoples across the world, um, of course it's sustainable. <laughs> you go on for 65,000 years, pretty sustainable. Mm -hmm. And I, yeah, I think I, I completely agree with you. I think that it's a, a philosophical idea and it's far more complex than we realize. We, we can, and I think it, it, it comes down to, we want to simplify everything, don't we, as humans? We want to break yes. everything down to, okay, well then let's have this pillar for economy. Let's have this pillar for, for the societal aspect. Let's have this pillar and, and then they're going to work together. And then even in the goals that we have from the UN, we have these 17 goals, but what we forget is that they're all interlinked. That's across correct. one another That's right. um, and it really it's actually a web <laughs> mm, mm. yeah how justifiable do you think is the criticism that it's still anthropogenic it's still centered around what it is or anthropocentric it, it's still really fundamentally based on human beings and their concern for their own future yeah I think we do have a problem there um, I think as humans w what's in it for us is is a dominating feature of our decision making mm. and and it will be I, I don't know if we're going to automatically change that we can criticize it all we want that, that that's probably not the best viewpoint to have but I don't think it's going to be shifting anytime soon um, because if we're looking at human behavior we do need to have those you know if we're looking at the motivational properties for change and behavior change and for changes to happen our society happen in our society then we do actually need to look at the human aspect of that. Um, and it would be really lovely if we're all gonna be going off of our moral conscience, but that's not the reality no. of our society, unfortunately. No. No. So yeah. Uh, 
what uh, what does environmental psychology entail? Ooh, it's a very very diverse field, to be okay. honest. Um, uh, there, it goes from everything from a clinical perspective of, say, looking at eco-anxiety to um, understanding the impacts that, um, you know, and the traumatic experiences of dealing with climate change, um, and that's only going to be increasing. Um, that's one avenue if you wanted to focus on the mental health aspect. And, mm -hmm. But then there's the other avenue where, um, where, where my research is more, and it's, it's crossed between political, social, and cognitive psychology. So essentially we can look at our human behavior and how we are mitigating or adapting to climate change as one avenue. We can look at how we're communicating climate change and we can look at the political um, tensions that are occurring due to things around sustainability and meeting our goals and even within businesses as well. Right. Um, so essentially because we have humans and humans are part of all of this and sustainability, whether we like it or not, that's where psychology can fit in in so many different ways. Mm. Yeah. Um, I've been um, interested of late in the, the connections between psychology and philosophy, which mm. themselves have been well apart, uh, certainly throughout my most of my academic career. Mm. And all of a sudden, it now seems, and if we also then include neurophysiology, uh, we've got a really, really exciting new field of endeavour, or at least a way of looking at the world which is different, right? Yeah, 100%. And I think we forget too, as um, in the psychology discipline, that we're stemming from philosophy to begin with, mm, right? right? And yeah. and then we've just developed a whole way of a systematic approach to, to understanding our, our human mind mm. and behaviour and how we think. And mm. so, um, yeah, and I think understanding our neuropsychology, the neurological aspects as well, um, from from genetics to epigenetics to neurobiology and and then into application to how that ends up in our behavior. Um, right. And then our decision, how we process the world around us is really mm. philosophical. At the end of the day, we're all layman psychologists or layman, uh, you know, mm. we're making, I don't know what I'm trying to say here, we're making decisions where we're not, we can't necessarily separate all of those no. apart anymore. Nor it seems to yeah. me in, in stuff that I've been doing over the years, are we aware of that? Mm. Um, so that if, for instance, if there is denialism of climate change as mm -hmm. an example, um, that to actually explore why people deny is really difficult because it comes down to things like confirmation biases, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. You know, that I'm, I'm going to believe this and nothing's going to change my mind. And that's exactly, this is what I find really fascinating. So I um, did my honours project um, here on climate change scepticism. Oh, uh, neat. <laughs> <laughs> so very relevant. Yeah, this is, excellent. This is, um, I'm currently writing it up for publication, so I can't talk too much about um, the right. actual study itself, but I can talk about the literature around this. So it's, what's really interesting is that if we look at the predictors uh, for climate change skepticism and then understand why it perpetuates and why it's reinforced and why it's still existing, yes, we can first off look at issues of misinformation and disinformation and the political agendas, um, you know, stemming from the 1970s onwards. Um, yes, those are there, but really the big one thing that we know is the more right-wing you are, the more likely you're going to be skeptical, the more left-wing, the more likely you're going to be accepting of climate change. That's there, but really what's actually predicting that is not necessarily political orientation, it's the values mm -hmm. that align with mm. the conservative 
that uh, way of thinking. So, mm. you know, maintaining a status quo, uh, justifying the free market ideologies mm. um, th- and social dominance, that there is a hierarchy to our world and that mm. humans are on the top and the, the world is at the bottom, which is pretty much exactly the opposite mm. of how, um, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders see our mm. world, mm. the world around them. So if all of those things are in place, and we look at solutions to things like climate change or sustainability initiatives, they are direct opposite to those things. We're Mm. asking for change to Mm. our systems. We're asking for a more egalitarian lifestyle. We're asking, you know, so it becomes a threat. Mm. They perceive the threat. And sometimes it's easier to deny that it's actually existing than to deal with the threat to our own values, that the core of who we are. And then that leads into the biases that you were talking about. So when we see information, it's not necessarily an issue of lack of knowledge. You know, we have this perception where, okay, we need change. Here's a bunch of information. Now you're educated. Your behavior should actually resemble that. But that's not what's happening. And we even for people that are concerned about climate change, that's not what's happening. Right. So there's a whole host of other issues going on there. Mm -hmm. And for people that are more likely to be skeptical and if we're asking them to change everything about who they are and how they see the world, it's going to be so much easier to read that information about climate change and go, well, nope, don't want to deal with that. Or they can even reinforce their beliefs. And yet there's yeah. a paradox here, isn't it? I mean, mm. to conserve is really the same as, say, to persist. Yeah. And so sustainability fundamentally is a notion of conservation. Yeah, which is actually, so it, instead it's like, okay, well, rather than asking someone to completely shift their worldview, how can we actually change our communication? How can we actually change how we are actually dealing with what's going on around us to align with the and tailor ourselves to the different people around Mm. us too? Mm. So if we're asking for, you know, we can look at communication strategies, but scientists can look at communication strategies that are going to be more around, like, let's actually keep this world around us. Let's, you know, what can we do to yeah. do this for our future, for our yeah. grandchildren? Because those things are important to you. Yes. So what? how can you be a part of that? Rather than going, well, your way of thinking is wrong. We need to do something. Let's, you know. <laughs> I find it, I, I used the word regrettable earlier about about um, the notion of, of um, custodianship. Mm. But I think it's regrettable that climate change has somehow or another been separated from the notion of, of sustainability. Mm. that now all of a sudden it's become an issue uh, and and again we are seeking a silver bullet to something for which there is no silver bullet Mm. and that if we only put it into the context climate change back into the context of saying well what you know what relationships do we want to have with the biophysical and socio-economic worlds around us um, would lead to more profound understandings one would hope yeah yeah that's exactly right and Again, I think, yeah, the silver bullet, we all want that easy, easy, simple solution mm. to, to things in front of us. Mm. Um, and again, that's our, the nature of people. That's what mm. we do. That's what we do in our everyday decision making. So yeah. it, it's not that surprising that that's what we're doing to, towards climate change. And, it, and we give it the term climate change when really it's just part of sustainability. And, yeah. you know, the climate is changing because we haven't been acting sustainably for, yeah. you know. Right. <laughs> so... Yeah, well, again, somewhat paradoxically, one could yeah. say, of course, that change is sustainable. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> change is something that we need to be doing. It's yeah. just um, 
we're doing it to an extent that it's not necessarily no, no longer sustainable. Well, as I said, <laughs> the uh, balance of change. Said yeah. earlier, we we focused on the goods and forgotten the bads. Yeah, yeah. But one of the um, wisest things I've I've ever read about sustainability was by an Australian, Aidan Davison, who I think is at the University of Tasmania. Um, anyway, he wrote a wonderful book about technology and the contested meanings of sustainability. Mm. And he really defined sustainability as leading to questions that bear directly on our forms of life, drawing out and giving practical substance to our disquiet and to our hopes. Well, that is quite beautiful, isn't it? I, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I just thought, particularly in a book about technology and, and sustainability, uh, but the whole idea that, that the, moton, the notion of sustainability leads, as he says, to an agenda of good questions, where good means how we should live our lives, which then, of course, means that this is fundamentally a moral issue. Mm -hmm. And I guess my concern, uh, and I'll, I'll put it to you as a psychologist, is that how do how do psychologists deal with moral issues? Mm. I mean, uh, psychology claims it's a science, and mm -hmm. I would accept that, yes, it is. Yeah. Uh, but that's not a scientific question. No, that's definitely not. But I suppose it's part of the value of, uh, I, I suppose if we look at science in general, right, um, we should be looking at science as our outputs should be doing something good mm -hmm. with it, right? Mm -hmm. We don't do science for the sake of science. We do science that's going to be applicable to actually doing something good for our world. Yep. And I think that psychology has that same ethos. Mm -hmm. I think that at the base root, we're not going to, you know, we can look at some really horrific, um, unethical, morally questionable research that existed way back, you know, and uh, for instance, you know, Zimbardo's research, the idea was we were just looking at um, the, the roles and conformity and different aspects of how we understand, um, you know, obedience, for example, mm. and then it mm. turned into this really, really morally questionable mm. study that mm. ended up with people really having injustice. So, and we've moved on from that. And I think now, today, when we look at the research outputs of research, you know, psychology researchers, it, it's value-based, it's value-driven. Right. And I think that's what's happening here at this university, at least, it's still value-driven. Like mm -hmm. We're doing the research because we know it's gonna have something good to mm -hmm. offer. It's going to make people better. It's going to right. do something good for our society. And same with clinicians, um, you know, going down that clinical route. They're not doing it to, <laughs> yes. I think that moral is value mm. and the values, it's still mm. socially conscious, mm. I think. I mean, it remains, and when we visited this theme several times during the series, uh, it seems to me still a tragedy that in schools, generally in, in Australia, there is really no focus on how you come to ethical judgments. Mm. I mean, we still rely too much, I believe, on the sort of moral codes that are set by our parents or by society, by a culture, um, which then brings us back to, to the dilemma you mentioned before between a uh, conservatism and progressivism that, that how do we progress if we just hold on to a moral code that's unquestioned really good um, that's really interesting because there's, if we look at uh, moral development in, in people and how we develop our mo moral decision making and there's a whole host of different models we could probably yeah. look at there but Kohlberg's is the one that kind of brings to mind is he talks about these different phases in which you know as in our younger years we might make decisions because um, that's what mom said, well, that's yeah. what my, mom and dad say, yes, no. And then we go on to, well, that's what the police, you know, say. And then we kind of go, okay, actually, is it good for the common good? Mm. You know, maybe mm. it's actually against the law, but I know I'm going to save a person for this. Mm. 
you know mm. so i'm going to mm. do it anyway mm. and um that development that's that's um cognitively you're developing um and and then also i think it's taking in the world around you so mm. um and i don't necessarily think that every person actually gets to that point and we all kind of have I believe very many people yeah. do <laughs> <laughs> but it's all it's, it's like the ethical dilemma with the trolley trolley um experiment where mm. you're going okay you turn here and you kill um your best friend or you turn right. here and you kill five strangers and right. what do you do what's the decision making right. process and it's the moral judgment the ethical and moral dilemma that you you know we're faced with but i agree full-heartedly and i actually wonder this actually goes on i'm curious because if we look at our society and how we've progressed, we used to have the assumption that just trust the authority, they know everything, and, and then we don't question. Right. You don't develop questioning skills, right. um, critical an analytical skills, especially in, in, um, you know, in high school and that. It's just they have the authority, you just listen to them. And then now, in today's day, we have access to information on our fingertips through yes. our mobile phones. So we can go, well, actually, no, here it says this. and so. But then we're not necessarily questioning that. No, and so no. it's interesting to see how our critical uh, thinking skills have actually developed and how if they've shifted, because essentially we're, we're putting trust in different ways. And I think that process is still the same, but perhaps it's as a society, what we've deemed as OK to trust this and not not trust that. I, I'm just I find that fascinating. I don't know enough about it. No, no. <laughs> A friend of mine actually wrote a book about it, oh. um, where he argued exactly your point, that, um, and he backs it up by using all sorts of wonderful um, examples from history, mm. of arguing that through relatively recent history, a couple of centuries or so, we've actually given up as individuals our moral judging capacity. Mm. And we've given it to the church, we've given it to the state mm -hmm. um, in terms of governments, we've given it to corporations. Uh, and as a consequence, as you rightly say, um, or he would argue you rightly say, is that the, there is a moral decline. Mm -hmm. And going back to cognitive psychology, we're now surrounding by sources of knowledge where it's very actually difficult to justify the validity of the claim that's being made. Mm -hmm. So one reads something on the internet and it becomes the truth without, as you say, without being critical about, oh, wait a minute, who said that? Why did they say that? What's the context of that being said? So it demands a whole lot more attention, application, mm. doesn't it? Yes. And attention in itself, though, is inherent to bias. So yeah. we attend to the things that are going to be um, confirming <laughs> confirming where we want to go and what we want to do. And I'm aware of the times. <laughs> no, no. But at the same time, though, it it's one of those things. So if we're going to go and spend more attention, spend our, our time putting more attention towards and selecting selecting what we, we need to go and check up and we're going to be critical thinkers, inherently we're also putting more emphasis on things that might not be true. Mm -hmm. Because we're going, oh, well, I believe it should be true and I'm going to keep looking in to make sure and verify myself mm -hmm. that this is what is true. So it could actually lead to more issues too. Right. And I, I'm yeah, I wonder, I think there's going to be some really interesting research coming out um, going into this understanding of critical thinking. We all need to develop critical thinking skills, definitely, no doubt about that. But if we're critically thinking on the things that are only confirming our ideas and we're seeking verification of it, the critical thinking is no longer critical thinking, it's just That's confirmation right. bias, right? right? And we're motivated to, to do that. We're motivated to have certain reasoning. Um, 
because we want to see our world the way we want to see it. Mm -hmm. We don't like knowing that we're thinking it incorrectly. No. No one likes that, yeah. Well, maybe that's too broad a generalization. Maybe lots of people don't give a damn. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, maybe. Or we're just looking, we're just just swiping. That's what we're doing. We're just scrolling our media and seeing all the things we want to see. And and, uh, if something is polarizing, we might look at it even more. And that's just going to... You know, that echo chamber continues on as uh, it's very quite a buzzword at the moment. <laughs> if uh, if we if we take Aidan Davidson's word seriously and following the conversations we've just been having, this portends revolutions in education, does it not? Yeah, I think so. I think we're going to have a really big shift in how we educate, uh, you know, educate from every level from Mm. primary into you know tertiary education Mm. um we do know that there's a slow shift so for instance we've known for so long that uh lecture theaters are not necessarily the way we should be learning yet all our institutions have lecture theaters in them now we don't know what to do with them (laughs) they're just sitting there empty it's just like a really slow application (laughs) and i think that's going to happen again we're going to have to progress on how we actually learn and um and for students, our, our presumptions of what learning looks like, too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I think, yeah, like you you looked at experiential learning, and mm. I think that is really where, where it's going to come down to. But it's learning how to think holistically and, and learning how to actually then go take. We need theoretical knowledge, and we need to have that knowledge, but it's learning how to apply. That's mm. really the skill set we're mm. going to be seeing because we can just go and deliver. You can get knowledge on your fingertips now. We know that to be true. But the skill itself of application is a skill that needs to be developed for every person. You can't necessarily get that on a piece of paper mm. and you can't get that on on your tablet. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, one of the difficulties we also face, uh, and I, you know, we all face this, I guess, as, as um, academics, as educated people generally, I guess, is the use of words where too many people's too many people limit their vocabulary. I mean, they reach mm. a stage where they sort of say, "Well, I, I know enough words now." And when you think of really important words, and I'm just as you were speaking then, I just thought of the word dialectic, dialectic the tension between theory and practice, of why on the one hand you want to think something through, and on the other hand you want to do something. And so there's a tension between the thinking and the doing. And there's a lovely word, dialectic, that says that. Mm. Um, when we talk about knowledge, there's a lovely word that says epistemology, which we've also explored briefly. Um, people will use the word epidemiology without thinking, mm. um, or recognizing it as a word they know. But if you say epistemology, which is an infinitely more profound word and a more important word, in my opinion, <laughs> people blank off and sort of say, you know, well, why are you using these big words? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what that's? It's all about that communication, right? That's that's uh, the ongoing challenge. But I think that you know you get some words that are more prevalent in today's society, and then mm. they're just like, oh, yeah, I know what that is. And mm. then you, you say other ones where it's not part of a common language no. that you're just going, oh, what are you what are you talking about? It, it, it's a, I, I think it's just the evolution of language in itself is is really quite a fascinating area, and mm. I don't know enough about it to be mm. honest, so I can't mm. speak too much. But I I am interested in seeing how um, we learn to communicate in different ways and I was actually at a, a research panel on on communication uh, last week and we had a, a wonderful presenter there and he was talking about um, 
learning how to actually get to the audience mm -hmm. and how for academics you you write all these beautiful papers right you get them published and then they're just sharing them along amongst other academics they're not necessarily getting put out into application mm -hmm. but so then you write a conversation piece to accompany it but even there you you actually need to take all those jargony words and then break it down so an, a 16 year old could read it mm. essentially mm. but even still the 16 year old isn't reading it so mm. you go and make a TikTok video mm. <laughs> it's just going from an academic paper all the way through back mm. to TikTok because mm. that's that's how the audience is taking it and I it's I, I can't say that's going to be right or wrong I don't know if that's answering your question in any way but I think I, I find that really fascinating I'm, I'm curious to see the evolution of written word and communications mm. moving mm. forward because yes you're right we, we dumbing down our language essentially yeah. so that it's palatable yeah well um one of my uh, my favorite sayings comes from oliver wendell holmes in the american 19th century referring to, to complexity and simplicity yeah and to paraphrase him he said really we want to get to simplicity on the other side of complexity we need to work through complexity and it seems to me that everything these days, in terms of, of digital communication in particular, is just reducing everything to ones and noughts um, very quickly without bothering to go through the complexity and understanding it all. So we do look for the silver bullet. We do look, in terms of sustainability, to parts per million of, of carbon dioxide or carbon in the air, uh, uh, the atmosphere. Um, we look at changes in the global temperature of 1.5 degrees Celsius. That hasn't been a thing, does it? No, they're just words. Yeah, they're just <laughs> words and numbers. And, and you think, well, wait a minute, you know, it's an enormous complexity that we really need to work through where the agenda of good questions becomes terribly important. Yes, that's a, oh, that's a really good uh, rounding off mm. of uh, that, that need to try and oversimplify everything because it's just so much easier for us to take. Mm. And... And when it becomes too complex, though, we have paralysis yeah, as people. Right. We just stop. Yeah. Well, why bother? Yeah. We can't do anything about this. It's too complex. Yeah. And so you need to have that balance. It needs to be balanced. But at the same time, we can't just seek a, a silver bullet because that's not going to solve anything no. either. No. You know, that doesn't exist. No. <laughs> no. no. Every solution brings another problem. Yeah. yeah. As soon as you go and put all your eggs in one basket, for one thing, you're only going to cause other issues um, for sure definitely you need to take everything into account and and balance it out mm. Carmen this has been a delightful conversation thank you very much I've really enjoyed it and I hope at some uh, later date you'll come back and we'll Aww. expand more on be lovely. cognition and understanding and knowing <laughs> thank you for having me my <laughs> pleasure a joy and honor thanks <laughs> and thank you all for listening and I look forward to the next time when we meet to discuss matters related to getting to better together. Till then, 